0: Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Jotner. My guest today is Olivia Nutzi, the Washington correspondent for New York Magazine. Nutzi initially gained fame after writing about her experiences as an intern on Anthony Weiner's doomed mayoral campaign, and then went to work at the Daily Beast. Since joining New York Magazine, she has written extensively about the Trump White House. Her profile of Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski and their fraught relationship with President Trump is currently the magazine's cover story. She's also written about other White House personalities, including Kellyanne Conway, Steve Bannon, and Reince Priebus. Olivia Nutzi joins me now by phone, a special by phone appearance. How are you, Olivia? I'm good. How are you? Uh, I'm okay. We've had some trouble recording this, which I should tell our audience, because you are currently outside the White House. Is that correct?
1: I am. I'm outside the, I guess, technically the West Wing. So if you hear any noise, it's like Secret Service walking by and slamming doors Um, because there's no there's really no space in the White House for to make any kind of phone calls. And there's no
0: self-service
1: in the lower press area, which is where the all the reporters do their work, which is problematic, as you could imagine.
0: I I can't imagine. Um, So let me ask you this, because we're recording this uh, Thursday afternoon. And my question for you is, can you just kind of go through your day on a day like today where you've been at the White House, um, sort of how it starts and how it ends and what's in between?
1: Well, I was up really late because Anthony Scaramucci, the new communications director, uh, was basically waging war against the current White House chief of staff. Um, And I was trying to sort of figure out exactly what was happening there and trying to talk to him. Um, And so I got a bit of a late start today. And basically, you know, I came here, uh, I went to the briefing, and now I'm just going to hang around here and and try and do some interviews and, and figure out, you know, what exactly is going on. But the problem is that it changes so rapidly. You know, so whatever is true today on Thursday... May not be true tomorrow. May not be true on Monday. I mean, it's likely that it won't be true anymore.
0: So, let me ask you: What's it like hanging around the White House, sort of before and after the briefings? What is? What are your interactions like with people in the White House staff and the White House press office? Because obviously, the picture we see on television is um, very contentious um, and fraught.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because I do. I hear people criticize um, Sarah Huckabee Sanders quite a lot for uh, for being rude or dismissive during the briefing, and I've never found her to come across that way. I think she just has kind of a dry sense of humor, which I appreciate, uh, but I guess it doesn't translate very well on camera or something. Um, but, you know, the general vibe, this week at least, it, it's, I think it's pretty different than it has been with Anthony Scaramucci here. Uh, Sean Spicer is still here, which is pretty awkward. Um, he's still roaming around, uh, and he's still in his office part of the time. So it's sort of, you know, there's sort of like an awkwardness at the staff level in the upper press area, which is behind the behind the briefing lectern. There's this little blue door that slides open. And you can go back there as a member of the press and sort of wait outside of the offices of the communications department staff and, you know, try and get comment or try and sit down for an interview or whatever. And this week it, it just felt a little bit different. And I don't know if, you know, if Spicer was sort of the reason why everything had felt very tense here in the past, but it has felt, you know, sort of very much like a new era in terms of White House communications, even though Anthony Caramucci is not exactly nailing it in his first two days on the job or first three days.
0: Well, then two questions. One, what was your relationship like with Spicer? And two, how has that atmosphere changed to the extent that you can speculate on this this next phase?
1: Well, it's interesting. You know, I I am in the briefing oftentimes but I'm not here every day and I'm not a part of like the press pool, right? So it's not like I'm someone who is always raising my hand and in his face and trying to get him to respond to me on camera. But we have had like, a pretty cordial relationship. I mean, he'll he's gotten mad at me a couple of times. Um I've received a few angry phone calls from him, but generally speaking, it's pretty cordial. He's never, I would never say that he's like particularly helpful to me because nobody in this White House is particularly helpful because they don't, they either don't know what the truth is or they can't tell you the truth. Um, But, you know, he was fine to me. I don't have sort of the negative feelings that some reporters seem to have. Uh, when it comes to Sean Spicer, but it's just different. It just feels more relaxed this week, and maybe it's because everything is in such disarray and there's so much chaos. And uh, it's you know the mooch, as as we're unfortunately calling him. Not on this podcast, right? Not. not on this podcast. <laughs> um, it's a very unfortunate nickname, and I'm I'm pretty mad about it. But uh, I think it's bad for the Italians more broadly. But anyway, um, you know he has. He has a very, very different style than Sean Spicer had. And, you know, part of what I'm hearing when I talk to people who are close to the president and who are close to uh, Garamucci is that that's pretty much the whole gist of why why he was brought on. Because Trump, he's someone, he and Trump viscerally understand each other. They people they have a lot of the same mannerisms, even, uh, the same body language. Um, he understands Trump in a way that Sean Spicer just couldn't. Uh, he just never quite got the whole Trump phenomenon, just on a sort of spiritual level. Um, and I, I guess, That is sort of the hope, is that having someone like Saramucci around is going to make Trump happier, make him feel more at home.
0: You said something interesting, which is you said that people in the White House either can't tell you the truth or don't know the truth. So I I guess the obvious follow-up to that is then... How anxious are you when you're writing stories that require quotes either on the record or anonymously from, from White House sources? And how, how, do you, how do you balance that tension, given that this is obviously not a normal White House in terms of telling the truth?
1: what well, I think that you can't look at them as sort of uh, people who are going to provide you with information. You have to look at them as subjects. So even if it's on background, it's still coming from the White House. And the White House is still the subject, if that makes sense. So it's like I think of it less in terms of, well, you know, I need an answer to this question. Uh, I have to contact the White House or I have to contact a senior official or the White House press office. And I look at it more as like, you know, it's it's an interesting part of the story's color to figure out what the White House is trying to tell you or, or you know, what White House staffers are saying amongst themselves.
0: So the meta story in a way is the story. It's like what 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 message they're trying to get across is in itself interesting regardless of what what else may be underlying it. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah, and you know, the thing about this White House and the thing about Trump in general, you know, I covered him during the campaign as well. Um, is that everyone in his orbit is always trying to fuck someone else. And once you determine who it is that they're trying to fuck over, it's sort of easier to process what they say you know, you can figure out where these allegiances lie at the moment. And although they're ever shifting, uh, you know, it's pretty easy to figure out, you know, who's on which team. And there are all these different factions within the White House. Uh, I think Maggie Haberman referred to it recently uh, in that David Remnick interview as being, like, actual gangs. Um, And so, you know, that's sort of how I look at it. just sort of, you know, their quotes are, are interesting insight into what the general vibe is in the White House, more than it's about getting information from them.
0: So uh, let me ask you that, you, you know, the, the idea of gangs, is there any sense of actual camaraderie among different factions in the White House? Or is it sort of, I mean, is there any sense among even groups of people, if not the whole White House, that we're in this together to, you know, together make good policies that are going to make America better? And we feel this sense of, you know, whatever, team, team spirit or is that just naive and basically even with even with a certain amount of different gangs um there's there's absolutely none of that
1: if that exists uh i haven't seen it i mean that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist Uh, other reporters may have seen it but i just haven't um it's it's more like everyone seems to be out for themselves and sometimes people's interests will align And then they will be aligned with one another. I mean, I think this has happened with Steve Bannon and Reince Priebus. Initially, they hated each other. um, And they actually, they did an interview with me uh, very early on in the administration to try and convince me that they were in love with each other and that they were best friends. And they put on this whole show about how they were giving each other back massages and they were best friends and they were bonding Uh, and they would go to fall asleep texting each other at night. Um, And they did that with a number of reporters. And I think, you know, as time has gone on, they found that they have to be on each other's side oftentimes because, you know, people in the White House are basically trying to shiv each other.
0: Maggie Haberman, who you mentioned, who's the uh, White House correspondent for The New York Times, said something to me, which is that she thought that people in the White House talked to her as a form of therapy, sort of a reality check, Mm -hmm. because they viewed reporters, even despite what the rhetoric may be, as offering a certain amount of uh, truth-telling about what was actually going on. Is that something that you feel that you get when you talk to people in the White House?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's funny. Oftentimes... With all sorts of different officials, they will ask you for your assessment of a given situation or your assessment of them or your assessment of, you know, what their relationship with another official looks like. And I certainly have never experienced that before. I Granted, I did not cover, uh, you know, the Obama administration, um, so I, I can't really speak to how different that is. But most reporters seem to be in agreement that, you know, this is something the vibe here is, it's very different than we've seen in the past, but yeah, I mean, they will ask you just, you know, well, do you think that, how do you think this looks or do you think I'm qualified for this job? You know, what do you think it looks like? And I think it's like, you're in a bubble when you work here and uh, you're in a bubble working for Trump more broadly. And it's, it, it it's a way for them to kind of get a reality check or just kind of learn how it looks on the outside and Trump does this a lot, too. I mean, one of Trump's most consistent traits is that he's always polling everyone around him to figure out what they think before he decides I anything. Mean, he did this famously at Mar-a-Lago, I believe, on Thanksgiving, where he was asking random party guests who he should pick as secretary of the state. Secretary of State. And so I think maybe it's a function of, of being around Trump. You just start to do kind of the same thing where you're constantly asking people for their assessment. Um, Leadership also, starts at the top. You, know, you become... Yeah. Uh, You know, the fish, the fish rods from the head. Um, That's probably more apt. Yeah. (laughs) And so I think I think it's, you know, probably a little bit of you become Trump like when you are around Trump for a very long time. But also, I think a lot of people here are aware that it looks very different from the outside.
0: You've written whether or
1: not they agree. Right. uh, It's a different story, but they are curious at the very least of how it looks.
0: You've written about some of the women in Trump's orbit, um, for example, Kellyanne Conway and Hope Hicks, who I don't know exactly what her official title is now, but um, you and, and I was just curious because, you know, obviously issues of Trump and women are fraught again, not to sound euphemistic here. And I was wondering what you think it's like to be a woman working in this White House and specifically what you think the women who do click with Trump what it is they're doing or are forced to do to kind of play in this very male, very, um, again, I can only think of euphemisms, uh, environment.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I profile a number of the women, uh, in his orbit. It's kind of been a recurring theme throughout my campaign coverage. And now my white house coverage, The you know, I profiled, who picked, uh, Marla Maples, the only interview she gave during the election was to me. Um, I, and, uh, you know, Kelly Conway, obviously, um, you know they're very fascinating to me because he's someone who women don't like broadly um, and and who obviously has said all sorts of, of horrific things about women uh, whether it's about their looks or or you know their intellect or he's you know assessing their mental health he likes to call women crazy a lot um I think basically you know to survive here as a woman you just have to kind of be able to let things roll off of you in a way that I, I always think about the first time that I interviewed Trump in person. Uh, you know, I went to Trump Tower and I hope Hicks let me into the office and she seemed very nervous because I was profiling her. And she said to him, oh, well, this is Olivia. She's very young. And I, would, I just sort of looked at her like, why, why would that be your intro for me? Um, and he looked me up and down and he was like, very young and very beautiful. And I always think like, you know, if that were a job interview, I would have run out of there. I would never have wanted to work in that place. But he was, you know, going about to be the Republican nominee at that point, And now he's the president. And I, you know, have to cover him all the time. But I always just think, like, you know, if someone had said that to me if I was going in for an interview at New York Magazine. And <laughs> that's how I was greeted by the guy in charge. I never would have accepted the job. But I think you just have to kind of look at Trump as being very different, as being almost like an alien figure in order to be able to deal with what it's like to work here. You just can't really assess him by by normal human standards.
0: And you think that's what the women in his orbit do?
1: I think so. I mean, I think, you know, no matter what he says, and granted, like, I don't think, I, I think there's been a lot of, like, wink-wink kind of coverage of Hope Hicks, who's the director of, I believe, Strategic
0: Communications,
1: and arguably, you know, one of the most powerful people here. She really is a gatekeeper. She controls access. And is very y-
0: very young as well, not as young as you, uh, who, uh, who you told me before. they're 28. Yeah, who you told me before the interviewer, um, 24. But yeah. yes, go on.
1: <laughs> you asked. But, yes, um, and at least when it comes to her i mean he he really does seem to regard her as a daughter, and granted he said some very creepy things about his own daughter. I was about uh, to say but you know he does he does seem to really think of his staff here like family, and I think that's why it's been difficult for him to let people go, even when he has you know reason to fire them.
0: So let's just step back for a second before I just ask you a couple more questions about Trump, which is how did you uh, how did you for people who don't know, how did you get into journalism?
1: Um, Well, when I was a senior in high school, um, sorry, there's security walking past me here. Um, When I was a senior in high school, I worked for an alt weekly in New Jersey, where I'm from, called the Tri-City News. And uh, I wrote political columns for them. Um, And. I freelance for a little bit and I uh when I was in college I was at Fordham University very briefly I started freelancing uh in a more meaningful way and in that time I uh I signed up to be Anthony Weiner's intern for his mayoral campaign. And with the thought that, you know, at the very least I would, you know, be able to see uh, a communication, a very high-pressure communications operation at work, um, or, or, you know, if things didn't go particularly well, I would be able to write about it one day. And things did not go particularly well, and so I wrote about it. And uh, it, it turned into, you know, kind of a, an insane tabloid story. And, uh, and then after that, uh, you know, I just continued to write, and uh, I ended up dropping out of college to join the Daily Beast full-time.
0: When you think about how the Anthony Weiner story was covered in the media and um, the the amount of attention it was given, and obviously you 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 as you said wrote a piece about it, w- w- when you look back, what do you what do you think of that? And was it overboard?
1: Was it overboard the coverage of, of Anthony Weiner in general? Yeah. No, I don't think so. I mean, it was a completely bizarre uh, bizarre story, and I I mean, obviously it was covered to death, and and I'm sure there were more important things that should have been driving the news cycle, but no, absolutely not. I think it was a, an insane, you know, American politics story. Uh, and, and now like a great tragedy when you think about how it all unfurled. Um, and I, you know, I said this recently, but it's like those last two years in American politics are sort of like the second half of Goodfellas when everything just starts sort of hitting the fan. And it's like the way that everything has, has, Sort of concluded here with Donald Trump as president. Anthony Weiner is like a sex offender. Um, it's just no one could have guessed these things. Maybe the Anthony Weiner thing, but but it seems unlikely people would have guessed this. You know, just a couple of years ago. Um, but no, it was, it was very strange. But I, you know, the Weiner thing because I got my start as a um, as a subject. I think I kind of view my own subjects very differently because I know what it's like to be written about in a way that has no no connection to who I am or who I feel like I am. Um, so it was actually, you know, as, as uncomfortable as it was to be, like, on the cover of a tabloid um, at, when I was, like, 20, it, it still, I think it was very useful in that I, I think I'm more empathetic to people in the press or, or more, uh, I understand, you know, kind of the conflict that you feel internally, if, if you are someone who's uh, written
0: about. Why a were you? Lot. Why were you on the cover of a tabloid? Uh,
1: because I wrote about um, Anthony Weiner, and uh, they they decided to put my uh, my face on the cover of the Daily News.
0: Was was that experience of, of interning for Weiner different than for the time you were there? Different than people might think? In any way, was it? Was was there something about the experience itself that stuck out to you aside from all the craziness going on? Being involved in politics no, I mean, at that I level. I was
1: There for like a month. You know, I was, like, there for barely a month. I was in college. I was a terrible intern. Um, you know, I didn't do anything I was supposed to do. Uh, and then I wrote about it. So I, I couldn't have been, like, a less helpful intern <laughs> as far as those things go. Uh, but, no, it wasn't. I mean, I don't think it was any different than, than people assumed it was. And, you know, it was just a, it was an interesting experience to kind of get caught up in that, uh, however, peripherally.
0: You've now been covering Trump for a couple of years, I guess, from his campaign, which was started a little more than two years ago. Have you noticed any changes in him as a person?
1: No, that's the thing. It's like I, I just profiled that just Garber and Mika Brzezinski for uh, for New York magazine. And I mentioned that in my intro, so
0: you don't even need to hype it.
1: <laughs> yeah, but, you know, they um, their uh, whole idea that that they want people to believe that Donald Trump is in any way different than he was is absurd. I mean, this is a man who I think he was in the second grade when he gave his music teacher a black eye because quote, I didn't think he knew anything about music. (laughs) You know, like the idea that he's any different than he's ever been is so silly to me. I think he's probably lonelier than he was when he was in Trump Tower. I think maybe he's, you know, unhappier. Maybe he's a little bit more paranoid than he was. Um, But I I don't think fundamentally uh, he's any different as a human being than than he's ever been.
0: You mentioned lonely. To what degree are um, his family part of the sort of daily scene at the White House? I mean, given that Jared and Ivanka play roles in the administration and Jared clearly a very important role, they're very, you know, they're not they don't they're not familiar in a certain way, the way. Reince Priebus even, or Steve Bannon, or I think a lot of people seem familiar. They seem a little bit more in the shadows. Do you have, do you have some sense of, of them more from working in the White House and around the Trump administration? (sighs)
1: You know I really don't all like catch glimpses of them sometimes, like you know they walked past me yesterday in the West wing, but like I know it's not like they're people who you stop and chat with, or me anyway. I don't know about other reporters. um It's not like I'm gonna text one of them to get some background on on what went down in a meeting. Do you know what I mean? Um, so they're very different than most White House officials, just in that respect, uh but they also just seem sort of far away, they're kind of untouchable in a way um And it's not, I have less of a sense of who they are as people than I do, I think, of of most other White House officials.
0: Do you get a sense of that there are people in the White House who genuinely think Trump is a great leader and have great respect for him and uh, see this as deep down as something other than a shit show? No. No, well, I
1: don't. Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't really gotten that vibe. I mean, sometimes I'll talk to someone, and I'll think, like, wow, they really drank the Kool-Aid this week. You know, they, they sound very—they sound like a mini-Trump, um, or they're arguing something to me that has no basis in reality in a very Trumpian way. But broadly speaking, I think, you know, most people are here for very self-serving reasons. Um, I think you you only really work for Donald Trump for very self-serving reasons, whether that was previously or, or now in the White House. Um, and, and certainly, you know, I, I never really— I never get the the impression that anyone thinks that he's some kind of genius.
0: My last question for you about your, your story this week, which is, did you get a sense when you were talking to Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski, did, did you get a sense that they were at all aware of, I think, what you mentioned, some of the errors that they had made during the primary, or do you get the sense that they're still sort of... Um, They've, they've actually convinced themselves that Trump has changed and they handled things well during that time when they were um, kissing up to him.
1: They are completely convinced uh, that they've done nothing wrong. I mean, unless they were just lying to me about how they feel, which is possible, um, they seem very convinced that they handled everything fine and that there was nothing unusual uh, or unsavory about what they did during the primary. Uh, they're very defensive about it, too you know they'll they'll name other reporters uh, now and in history who they think have behaved similarly um, so no i don't I don't think so at all, but you know the strangest thing about that piece is that the White House spent so much time engaging on it. Meanwhile, you know, what they're arguing pretty much the whole time is that this is not something that we care about. we don't pay attention to them, and the president doesn't even really think about these people that he tweets about um, but you know they spent considerable time talking to me about about the two of them. Uh and you know, when they could have been like, I don't know, figuring out what's in the healthcare bill.
0: Yeah. Well, that's uh that's interesting but not surprising. Um (laughs) Olivia nutzi is the Washington correspondent for New York magazine. She has the cover story and the current issue on Newsstands Now. Olivia, thank you for taking time out of your White House day to join (laughs) us.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. Sorry for all the noise.
0: And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dilling with help today from nobody because Olivia joined us by phone from outside the White House. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, please email me at, ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. And one more thing. If you're looking for more great podcasts from Slate, check out the Double X Scab Fest. It's a podcast that covers feminism, gender, sexuality, health, politics, Beyoncé, and other issues relevant to women and feminism. It's hosted by Hannah Rosen from Invisibilia, New York magazine's Noreen Malone, and Slate's own June Thomas, the great June Thomas. I recommend it highly. Find the Double X Gabfest at Slate.com slash XX or wherever you get your podcasts.